weekend around here, we had a, a wonderful uh, seminar on biblical racial reconciliation yesterday, uh, but it didn't, uh, it started off with a, a lot of stress, actually. On uh, Friday night, we were uh, working on getting this whole place set up. We had a great volunteer team, and we we're just ready to, to get out of here uh, after being here for probably, I don't know, from 6 in the morning till uh, 6.30 at that time. And uh, I got a phone call. Actually, Evan got a phone call and was our speaker. And uh, he was in, uh, he's from Waco, Texas, and he was at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, and American Airlines had canceled his flight. And uh, so now all of a sudden, we got to figure out how to get him here. So uh, I went out on, on the internet, looked around, saw that there were a couple other uh, flights that were leaving Dallas-Fort Worth. So uh, I went out to uh, my uh, browser, and I wanted to uh, they weren't, weren't going to let me uh, make the stuff online because it was too close to when the flights were going to take off. So you had to talk to a human being. And so I had just recently changed my search engine. One of our staff members who will go unnamed uh, said, hey, you should try out this new search engine called DuckDuckGo. And uh, maybe some of you have used it. And so I had switched my browser to default to this DuckDuckGo thing, which the name in itself is a scary kind of thing. And so I, I Googled American Airlines, or Duck, Duck Goat, I guess I did, uh, American Airlines reservation number. And uh, just like Google, it pops up a little telephone number uh, right at the top of your screen, so you don't have to search real far. Over on the right-hand side, it gives you like a preview of the website. And uh, it, it was, wasn't an 800 number, it was an 855 number, which was a little puzzling to me. Uh, so I call the 855 number, and uh, the person answers the phone, says, American Airlines Reservations, how might I help you? And I thought, this seems just a little strange, because normally you get the computer voice, but hey, you know, I thought maybe American Airlines is upping their game or something like that. And so I, I get in this conversation with, with the agent, tell him my problem, and uh, he begins the process of booking the flight. And it's a weird conversation because I can hear people talking in the background. And I'm like, this just doesn't seem right. And, uh, and then he's putting me on hold and he's taking me off hold. And we finally get this whole thing done. And uh, he asked for the, the church's credit card number. So I give him the, all the church's credit card information. He tells me that that didn't work, that he needed a different credit card. So I, now I give him my personal credit card information. And uh, yeah, you know where this is going, right? And so anyhow, uh, he puts me on hold again, and then I hear this computer voice say, you have five minutes remaining on this telephone call. I'm like, what is that? He doesn't come back, doesn't come back, doesn't come back. And I've given him my cell phone number, too. I'm on the church line, but I gave, gave him my cell phone number. It comes up and says, you have one minute left on your telephone call. I'm like, what? You know, it's like the countdown of death or something like that. So ultimately, it hangs up on me. And I'm like, oh, no. So the guy, finally, he calls me back on my cell, gives me a confirmation number, and then tells me that it's going to be 240 bucks, which I expected because I saw that online. And then, oh, by the way, there's $190 of taxes that is going to be billed separately on your card. And here what I got was I got this, like, scam guy who actually booked my ticket but charged all this extra money onto my card. So the flight is like at 11 o'clock, leaving Dallas-Fort Worth at 11 o'clock at night. So any of you who have flown, you do the math. He's getting into not Harrisburg, but Philadelphia at like 3 o'clock in the morning. So uh, I'm like, Evan, dude, you're going to have to go and get this guy because I can't get him. And so Evan volunteers to go. We get him a hotel room because we figure we ought to at least give him like a bed for like two hours or something like that. So he ultimately, he gets in at 4 in the morning in Philadelphia. The shuttle to the hotel does not start again until 5. He has to call an Uber. He Ubers to the hotel. He gets about an hour and a half sleep before Evan shows up from Harrisburg to pick him up. Drives this guy back, all right? We have a wonderful conference. Things go well. I, we get him put to bed at his hotel, you know, and I'm getting ready to go to bed last night. And I thought, you know, I ought to check out George's flight for tomorrow morning just to make sure everything's okay. I look there, that stinking flight is canceled. And I'm picking him up this morning. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. 
So anyhow, I, I give him a call, and he's like, yeah, I just found out, and they let me know that they scheduled me, um, fortunately, they scheduled me a new flight. It's on Wednesday morning to Dallas. <laughs> Wednesday morning! Like, this guy's got to work. So we booked him one United, then we had to, we got him to DFW. I know I'm telling you a long story, but I'm just, I, you got to share in my pain here this morning, all right? So we get him to DFW, I got him to DFW, but now he's got to get a flight from DFW to uh, Waco. So we had to book another American flight there. And oh, by the way, when I did get a hold of American Reservations, you know what they told me? We'll be happy to call you back between two and four hours, is what they told me. So anyhow, I think he is in the air right now. That's what I'm hoping. You know, there's probably some guy named, you know, Guido that is uh, at, the very, at this very moment is charging like a uh, MacBook on my, uh, my credit card probably. But we'll deal with that when we get home later on today. So anyhow, that's what life's been like around here at Living Water for the last couple uh, days. But it's been exciting and it was good. I'm very grateful for George Yancey. Uh, I appreciate all the things that he has done for me and Living Water over all these years as we've worked to plant this multi-ethnic church. I'm super thankful for the, the team that helped us pull off uh, the conference this uh, weekend. They did a, a phenomenal job uh, under Panna's leadership and Evan's leadership. Yeah, a little round of applause for them. And uh, also, thank you guys for, for praying. Uh, it uh, Definitely, we knew that God was working in the midst of all of that. So, hey, let's get going. Uh, we're going to continue our study through the uh, New Testament book of Romans uh, this morning. And we're about to start on chapter 8. And uh, chapter 8 is a, a transition point, a major transition point in this uh, letter that the Apostle Paul has written. In the first uh, seven chapters... Uh, he explains all of the great truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he talks about the universality of sin. He talks about the holiness of God, uh, God's wrath against humanity's sin. He talks about the love of Jesus Christ who gave his life to atone for our sins. Talks about justification by faith and salvation through grace and grace alone. And so for the last five months, as we've worked our way through these seven chapters, we have, we have been feasting upon great theological truths. But great theological truths do nothing unless you allow them to transform your life. All great theological truths do is give you a bunch of knowledge. Great theological truths a lot of times make people very ignorant, not as in stupid, but as in mean. But what great theological truths are ultimately designed for is to ultimately change the way that you and I behave. And so that's what's going to happen now. Because for the balance of this study as we work our way through the Romans, this is going to get very, very practical on how we are to live our Christian lives. Because everything that we've learned over the last, seven, uh, the last five months, last seven chapters, is all designed ultimately for life change. It's to make you and I to be more like Jesus Christ. So let's get started. If you've got a Bible with you, Romans chapter 8, we're going to deal with the first 13 verses uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Uh, they're also on your happy little smartphone uh, that you have there. And uh, if you are able to stand in honor of God's word, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Amazingly beautiful words here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of his sinful flesh uh, uh, likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit 
set their minds on the thing of the spirit, things of the spirit. For to set the mind on flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh, or the flesh, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit which dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you were put to death, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Romans chapter eight has uh, been described by many as the most glorious chapter in all of the Bible. If it's possible for one chapter of the Bible to be more glorious than any other chapter of the Bible. Others have said that, that if the Bible is the, the church or a cathedral, that, that Romans 8 is the inner sanctum. And so we've got this amazing uh, section of Scripture. And in these 38 verses, we're going to discover some incredible things. First of all, that we are set free from God's condemnation for our sin. We're going to learn that God's Spirit has actually taken up residence in our being. That we have been adopted into God's family, that, that a glorious eternity in heaven awaits us, and that God has good purpose for the struggles and the pain that we experience here on earth. Some of the struggles and the pain that people are going to talk about on November 13th from 1 to 3 when we have this grief share seminar for the holidays. So if you want to be encouraged to grow and live out your faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to love these next Four weeks, but I want to give you a disclaimer right up front. God has packed so much truth into these verses in chapter thirty or chapter eight. There, there are nuggets of gold everywhere, and, and Mike Bongo and Pastor Ben and I are not going to be able to mine those nuggets sufficiently enough. We're not going to be able to cover everything. We are going to probably miss things. As a matter of fact, I can guarantee we're going to miss things. So let me put this into context. Uh, many years ago, down in Philadelphia, there, there, there's a church in Philadelphia, a Presbyterian church called, called 10th Street Presbyterian, 10th Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia. And back then, there was an amazing pastor by the name of James Boyce. Now, James Boyce has written, written, has written, that's a great word, right? Has written some amazing commentaries, and they're all uh, expositional commentaries, in other words, to help pastors preach. And on here, he has a three sets, uh, a commentary, three set commentary just on Romans. And on Romans chapter 8, this dude devoted 27 chapters. 27 chapters just to Romans 8. That's over a half year of preaching, and we're going to try to pull this off in four weeks. So what I need to tell you here is while, while Pastor Ben is going to do a great job, as he always does, of, of looking at this thing incredibly in depth. I mean, we've got a stack of commentaries this high that Ben reads every stinking one of them. Okay, And, and Bongo and, and his wonderful style is going to to go through this extraordinarily well. Me, on the other hand, you got to remember, I'm a business guy who happens to be a pastor. So I'm going to do my best here, all right? But I guarantee you I'm not going to cover everything that you would like to have covered. So what we're going to look at here in these 13 voices, verses this morning is this framework that, that the Apostle Paul lays out for, for what an authentic Christian life looks like. And, and it's a life that comes with 
what I have discovered as three things. It comes with a new status. It comes with a new mindset. And it comes with a new responsibility. Those are the things that we're going to look at this morning. A new status, a new mindset, and a new responsibility. So let's talk about what this new status we have as once we are in Christ, once we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Look again at verses 1 through 4. Paul says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free and Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, for those of you who have been here at Living Water for any length of time, for those of you who have been people who have been devoted to study of the Bible, you will know that one of the things that happens when you're reading a passage of Scripture is if it starts out with the words, therefore, it's pointing back to some prior teaching that you need to be aware of. So when you see therefore, you've got to go backwards. Now, there's some debate in the, the theological uh, commentary spectrum about how far back you actually need to go here. Some people say that, that Paul is just going back and referring to chapter 7. Other people say that he's referring to everything that he's talked about in the first seven chapters. I kind of lean on the first seven chapters is that's where he, he's laid out all of this information. Now he says, therefore, let's cut down to the chase and talk about how your life is supposed to change. And so what did we learn in those last seven chapters? We learned one thing is this. Sin is not something we do, right? Sin is something that we actually are. It's something that, 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 that we're born with and, and that, that we actually practice and become very good at doing. The second thing we learn is this, that, that our sin has not only separated us from God, but it also makes us an object of his wrath. Now, a lot of people don't like hearing that, but, but our sin makes us an object of the wrath of God. And we've also learned that the only way that we can receive forgiveness of our sin and be reconciled by God is by his grace, which we appropriate through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And when that occurs, when that day comes, as it did last week, when, when a, a person came up and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior here after one of our services, when that day comes, when, when a person, when you or I, when we repent of our sins, receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, all of a sudden we become in Christ. And we are given a new status, which is captured in three amazing words there in verse 1. Now, no condemnation. So let's unpack that a little bit. What does that mean? What does now no condemnation actually mean? Well, let's just look at the words. Start out with the word now. What do we use the word now for? It expresses that there has been a change of state. Something has been transformed. I was this, and now I'm that. I was 205 pounds three weeks ago. I finally stopped eating ice cream. I'm now 200 pounds. I was this, now I'm that. And in this case, I, you, and we is what Paul's talking about. We used to not be in Christ. Now I, you, and we are actually in Christ. So that's the now part. There's been a transformation. We've gone from outside of Christ to being inside of Christ. Then you get to the no. Now, in English, the, the no is just simply a negative. We don't have actually levels of no in the English language. The, the, the way that you know whether the no is, you know, like a really serious no or not so serious no is typically like, no, right? I mean, that's a serious no as opposed to, yeah, no. But in the Greek language, there are different 
words for no based on the level of no and where you put those words in the sentence also determines the intensity of the no. And in this case, the Apostle Paul, he's using the most forceful no that you can in the Greek language. And then finally, the word condemnation. It means not only to be declared guilty, which is bad, but it also uh, means to inflict the penalty upon. So now we know what this is, okay? We know what condemnation looks like because we've either served on a jury, we've either sat in a courtroom and watched the court proceedings, or we've watched television programs about court proceedings. And, and here, here's the way that it goes down in court. I've served on a couple juries. I've had some friends who are judges. And so you're sitting in the courtroom, and, and I'm thinking about a, a time a number of years ago, a dear friend of mine made some really stupid decisions, completely wrecked his life. And, and, and you're in the courtroom, and, and everything has been said. The jury goes out. They deliberate. They come back in. They've got the verdict. And you're sitting there, and you're wondering what the verdict's going to be, and you're hoping that it's going to be not guilty. And my buddy's sitting there, and the judge says, jury, how do you find the defendant? And they say, guilty. And the air gets sucked out of the room. But that's not the worst part. You come back a week, two, three, four weeks, whatever it is. And that's when they render the sentence. And you're sitting in there, and there's been arguments like, oh, give the guy probation, you know, do this, that, or the other thing. And the judge comes back and says, five years. That, brothers and sisters, is condemnation. Not only have you been found guilty, you have been placed under a sentence. You're going to have to serve time. And when you put all of these things together, now no condemnation, what do we discover? That those who are in Christ, they are not condemned, period. That is an amazing thing. For the Christian, condemnation no longer exists. It is gone. There's no going back, no matter what we've done in the past, no matter what we're doing right now, no matter what we do in the future. All of our sin, present, past, and future, has been paid by the sinless, sacrificial, and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is incredibly good news. Now, we talked about this. That's not licensed to continue in sin. That's not a, 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 you can just go do whatever the heck you want because if you go and you do whatever the heck you want, you're trampling on all this stuff and you probably weren't in Christ in the first place. But for those who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Now, how does that happen? How is that possible? Well, in verses two through four, we see this. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, which is the sinful nature, but in accord to the Spirit. So before receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our only means of justification with God was by fully meeting God's holy standard as outlined in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, and the 603 other laws that are recorded in there. If you wanted to get into heaven without Jesus, you had to do all of that. Consistency, consistently, every day of your life from conception till death. That's how you get to do it on your own. Now, it's important to understand this, that, that God's law is perfect. It's holy, it's just, it's good, it's right. But there's a problem. It's right there in verse 3. God's holy, right, and good law was weakened 
by the flesh. Now, allow me to explain that. In order to meet God's law, apart from faith in Jesus, it requires human effort. But there's a problem. Our flesh, which is another word for our sinful nature, made it impossible for us to do that. Absolutely impossible. And that's what Paul means when he says the law was weakened by the flesh. And, and, and we get this. I mean, let's think about this. Let's say we wake up some morning and we say, you know what? I'm going to spend this entire day obeying the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to have one single slip up. I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments, jot and tittle, every single word, completely for the entirety of the day. So let's think about this. Try setting all of your affections for the entirety of the day upon God. Don't swear. Guys, don't look lustfully at a woman. Try to be satisfied with what God has given us. Don't desire what others have. Try not to even give the slightest lie. Now, maybe you're better than me. I make this maybe an hour. And I'm probably breaking the commandment of don't lie because it would probably be more like 30 minutes, all right? But isn't that the, that, that's the reality of it. And, and, and we go through life thinking if I'm a good person, God's going to have to receive me into heaven. The pro, we can't even follow the stinking Ten Commandments for 10 minutes. And somehow we think we're going to get in there with God on our own merits. You see, the bottom line is that our sin nature prevents any of us from fully satisfying God's law. And in the midst of humanity's sin, Jesus steps into human history. And he leaves the glory of heaven and he takes upon himself human flesh. And he is like us in every way except for one. He has not inherited sin. That's the purpose of the virgin birth. Jesus comes into this world totally like us, but with one glaring difference. Mike Leonzo came into the world deep in sin. Jesus doesn't. And he does what we cannot. Verse 4 says he fulfills the righteous requirements of the law for us because Jesus has done that. Because he's fully satisfied God's law for us, we are no longer under condemnation. There's no way that we can be accused any longer. This is freeing. When we're Christians, when we've truly repented of our sins, received Jesus into our lives, When we sin, we're not condemned by God because Jesus has satisfied the law for us. And if we're in Christ, Paul is saying that condemnation that we feel sometimes, it actually doesn't exist. We are fully and utterly accepted by God, not on our own merits, but on the merits of Jesus. And as a result, we don't have to live defeated and depressed lives because what we have done, because of what we have done, or because of what other people have done to us. We are fully accepted by God. So accepted that we become his adopted sons and daughters. He doesn't look at us as as objects of wrath, but rather of objects of affection and love. You see, but when we're in Christ, we don't just get a new status, which is amazing in and of itself. We also are called to live under a new mindset. Look at verses 5 through 8. It says, for those who live according to the flesh, according to their sinful nature, set their minds on the things of the flesh the things of the sinful nature, the things of the world. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Paul comes along, and he, 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 he basically says there's one of two ways that you can live. It's binary. There's not all these other options out there. You can live in one of two ways. Paul says that we can either live according to the flesh or we can live according to the spirit. Now, what does it mean to live according to the flesh? Well, as I shared with you before, when it says, when you see the, the word flesh there, it's the Greek word sarx, it typically means our sinful nature. And everyone in this room is intimately familiar with, with living according to the flesh because that is exactly how we were before we came into faith in Jesus Christ, or that's exactly how we are right now because we've yet come to faith in Jesus Christ. And to live in accordance with the flesh involves not just what we do, but it also involves what we think about, where we set our mind. Because those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And this is important because where our minds go, that's where our bodies go. What we think about up here is exactly what we do. Galatians 15, 19 to 21 gives us a very vivid picture of what it looks like to live according to the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident. It means it's out there for everyone to see. It's not hard to see these things. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What's the result of doing those things? Well, the first thing that we know is the result of doing those things is you destroy relationships. Any, any of us, we, we, many of us, most all of us, have, have gone, gone down that path. And that path's not, it, you know, it, it's just a subset of all the rest of the stuff. So we know it destroys relationship, but it not only destroys relationship with people, it destroys relationships between us and the God of the universe. Galatians tells us what? When we do those things, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, we will live all of our eternity separated from God. And this is affirmed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 6, and 7. He says, for to set the minds on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is incapable. It cannot. You see, when we set our minds on the flesh, we experience death, hostility to God, and the inability to follow his law. But we don't have to live like that. There's another way to live. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, we are called to live according to the Spirit, and we are to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And when we do that, verse 6 tells us that something happens in our lives that every human being wants. What is it? Life and peace. That's what we want. 
Why, why do we work so hard to keep ourselves alive? Why, why, why all this effort on the pandemic? Because everybody wants life. There's nobody who wants to die. And everybody wants what? Peace. We don't want all this hassle that's going on in this world, right? This last, who knows, couple decades has been crazy. The last six has been, years has been insane. The last 24 months, crazy. Just want peace. Kathy and I, we lived in, in Los Angeles when Rodney King was beaten. And I can remember the words of Rodney King after all of that stuff. Can't we just get along? That's what we want, want peace. That's what everybody wants. And this is further explained in Galatians 5, right after what I just read about all the works of the flesh. It says what? But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We read those things. Yeah, I, I, I got that. I'm, I'm down with that. Can, can you bring that back up one more time, please? But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. It's peace. And patience. Kindness. And goodness. Faithfulness. And gentleness. And self-control. And against such things... There is no law. These are amazingly beautiful things. And they're available for those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit. But let me ask you this question. And specifically, let me ask this question to those in this room right now who, who say to themselves, I'm a Christian. There is no doubt about it. I have repented of my sins. I have received Jesus Christ as, as my Lord and Savior. I am confident I'm going to heaven. Let me ask you, those people, and I'm in that crowd, this question. Are you really experiencing the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Does your life really exude love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? And for many of us, I do not believe that's the case. Sadly, I know a lot of Christians who aren't displaying a lot of love right now, especially towards other Christians and occasionally towards non-Christians. I know a lot of Christians whose lives are not filled with joy but they're filled with bitterness. Who are living lives of anxiety and fear and not peace. Whose patience with their kids, with their spouse, with their coworkers, with their neighbors is worn thin. Whose kindness is non-existent, who have replaced goodness with anger, who are harsh rather than gentle, and who are anything but self-control. And I'm willing to bet that you probably know some like that too. And perhaps... You know them too well because for some of us, 
They stare back at us in the mirror when we get up and brush our teeth in the morning. Now, why is that? Why would that be the case? Why would people whose, whose sins have been completely forgiven, who are now under no condemnation, why would we not be experiencing that? Why is that not overflowing in our lives? Why are our lives filled with, with, with bitterness and, and anger and division and dissension? Why, why, why is that? What is happening here? Well, I believe in reality that we're really setting our minds not on the spirit, but on the flesh. And when we set our minds upon the flesh, it radically affects our behavior. So let's do a little test here. Uh, you, you, don't, you, you get to keep the score yourself, all right? I don't have to disclose anything, all right? This is a little test you can take kind of in your head. So let me ask you a couple questions. How much time do you and I Spend in God's word on a given day. Be really honest because I'm not going to judge you because I don't know what you're thinking. But how much time do you actually spend, how much time do I actually spend reading God's word on a given day? Five minutes? Fifteen minutes? Half hour? Not at all. How much time do you and I spend in prayer on a given day? And I'm not talking about the now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayer. Bless us, O Lord, these gifts that we are about to receive from my bounty through Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm not talking about those. You can tell a little bit of Catholic stuff coming out there, right? I didn't grow up Catholic, but I'm part of a very big Catholic family on the other side. How much time do we spend actually praying to God? Five minutes? Ten minutes? Fifteen minutes? Half hour? Maybe not at all. How much time do you and I spend talking to others about the Bible or the gospel or what we're learning from God each and every day? How much time? Five minutes? Ten minutes? Half hour? How much time? Three questions, three answers, not a big math test. Tally it up in your head. So now let's compare that with how much time on a daily basis do we spend listening to talk radio? Whether it's NPR, WHP, how much time? How much time do we spend in a given day watching CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, Newsmax? How much time? How much time do we spend on that little pocket gadget that we have? On social media? Seeing what's going on with our friends from far away? How much time do we do that? How much time do you and I spend talking to others about politics, COVID, 
or any other one of the many things that have captivated our culture. Now tally that up. You know, when I went to college, I was a computer science and math major. And one of the things that I love about math is math doesn't lie. Math is completely objective. So what's the math tell us? Well, if we are immersing ourselves in the things of this world and the things of this flesh, is it surprising that we are experiencing a deficit of life and peace in our lives? Is it surprising that we're in relational struggles with other Christians? Is it surprising that, 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 that we've relegated ourselves to our own little tribes? And while we're at it, let me ask you this question. And let me ask myself this question because I'm really preaching to myself more than I'm preaching to anybody else right now. But do I adjust my view of society and life and politics to conform to what I'm learning in the Bible? Do I read the Bible one day and I read down through there and I find something that is completely contrary to what I believe outside of the Bible? And do I actually change the way that I believe outside of the Bible because of what it says? Or do I do it completely the other way? Do I read the Bible, see something I don't like in the Bible that doesn't line up with all of the things that, that my politics or, or my views uh, of what's going on in the world, and then I try to change the Bible to conform to my worldly views. That's the situation we have when we set our minds on the things of the flesh. We tweak God to fit the way the secular world tells us that we should think. Paul isn't done with us. Look at verses 9 through 11. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, through his spirit who dwells in you. Brothers and sisters, the spirit of God, the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, what does it? He dwells in us. He's inside of us. There is a power inside of us that raised someone from death to life. That's inside of us. Do we really understand that? Do we understand that, that that power is going to give life to our mortal bodies and that we don't have to be controlled by the flesh? You see, we can flee from the evil works of our formerly sinful nature. We can repent. We can find meaning and significance and hope in this world. We can put off the old self because there's something very powerful inside of us. We don't have to be controlled by all of these other things in the world. Now, I'm only going to spend a couple minutes here on my final point because Mike Bongo, who's preaching next week, uh, is going to deal with verses 12 and 13 in a lot more detail. But let me just touch on it here briefly. You see, when we're in Christ, not only do we get this new status, and not only are we to have a new mindset, 
but we also get this new responsibility. Look again at verses 12 and 13. It says, so then, brothers, sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For in you, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, we have this new responsibility. And that new responsibility is that we are put to death the deeds of the body. And, and the phrase here that is being used, put to death, is, is violent and absolute. I mean, what we are being called to do, this, this, it's mortification is, is a word that's been used. It's to mortify the sin in our lives. The best way that I can explain it is I want to take you back to 1991. Uh, many of you were uh, alive during that time and, and might be able to remember this. Some of you are actually probably may have been in the very place that I'm about talk, going to talk to you about. But if you remember, during those days... Saddam Hussein, the president of Iraq, invaded the nation of Kuwait. And, and it, the United States rallied the world to go and to expel Iraq out of Kuwait. And if you remember, it started off with an air war. And, and, and the air war was like nothing that anyone had ever seen because this was the time when CNN and cable news had, had really become 24-7. And so you were just watching this barrage go on. And then after the air war had pounded these guys, I can't remember, maybe it was a week or two weeks or something like that, then they began the, the ground offensive. And the ground offensive involved uh, running tanks up into Iraq and also running tanks up into Kuwait and basically trying to, to pinch these people off, pinch the Iraqis off. And so uh, the Iraqis, they begin to flee from Kuwait and they start to flee back to the east to get to Baghdad. There's one road basically that leads through the desert that takes you from, from Kuwait City to Baghdad. I think it was Highway 10. I can't remember, but I think it was Highway 10. And, and imagine this. There's like 1,500, 2,000 vehicles filled with Iraqi soldiers fleeing for their lives, trying to get back home. You've got the, the American forces that, that are, are pushing you, and they're all on this road, and on either side of the road, it's just massive desert. This convoy of all of these cars, like, I don't know, 40 miles long or something like that. And the first thing that happens is the, the Marine Corps sends in A6 intruders. They're, they're basically uh, small, small fighter-looking things, but they're bombers. And the A6 intruders, what they do is they bomb the front of the convoy, and they fly back 40 miles, and they bomb the back of the convoy. And there's nowhere for these guys to go. And for the next two days, the, the United States Army helicopters, the Marine Corps, the Navy, and the Air Force, all the air power of the United States is unleashed on these 1,500 to 2,000 vehicles. Some of you know what that looked like. You remember, it was called what? The Highway of Death. In those days, they, they, they came to, to George Bush. Uh, General Powell comes to George Bush, to the old George Bush, and says, sir, we've got, we've got to stop. I mean, we, we, have, we have absolutely massacred these people. Every vehicle decimated. Human bodies hanging out the turrets of tanks. Arms, legs scattered all over the place. This is what Paul is talking about, of what we're to do with sin. To have no mercy on it whatsoever. Here's the problem. I don't approach my sin that way. I don't see my sin as a clear and present danger. And because I don't see my sin as a clear and present danger, I don't go all in. And I'm here to bet that you don't either. 
And when Paul says that we are to put to death the deeds of the Bible, he means that we aren't to play games with sin. That we don't try to wean ourselves off sin. That we don't try to keep it under control. Instead, we attack it with all of the viciousness that the United States Armed Forces did to the Iraqis. We decimate the sin in our life. It must be destroyed at all costs. Because if we don't destroy the sin, brothers and sisters, it will destroy us. And it is happening in churches all around America. There is sin in churches of Christians chewing one another to pieces. And it is decimating churches. And it is decimating families. And it is decimating lives. And in personal lives, there are men and women who poo-poo their sin. And Paul comes along and says, don't. Attack it with an utter vengeance. Now, how do we do that? No, notice what happens there. In verse 12, there is, it starts out with so then. It's kind of like therefore. It's like you got to look back because this is the conclusion. So you got to look back. It refers to this prior thought, which is contained in the verse prior, verse 11. It says, if the spirit of whom raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells within you. What is Paul doing? He is pointing you and I to the most powerful force on the face of the planet. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel that comes along and sets us free from it's the sin. It gives us the power to escape sin. It gives us the ability not to, to feel condemned because the gospel, when preached to ourselves, lets us know that we have been freed by sin from Jesus Christ. And the way that we kill sin in our lives is to relentlessly focus on the work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And if you can picture him hanging on a cross, blood pouring out of his body, skin shredded, and realize that that was being done for you and me, changes everything. Changes utterly everything. So when we go and, 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 and we're being drawn into that sin, if we can get our minds wrapped around what has been done for us, that cross, that death will be so more appealing than the sin that is calling us to itself. Sin is never killed by our self-control. It's never killed by the strength of what we can do for ourselves but rather by the depth of gratitude that we have for what Jesus has done for us. Might we every day live in the depth of that gratitude? Let's pray. Precious Savior, beautiful are your nail scarred hands and feet thank you thank you thank you that you love me and these folks so much that you were willing to give all that you had so that we might live thank you that we are no longer under the condemnation of God the Father. No longer are we subject to his wrath because of what you have accomplished, Jesus. Thank you that, that, that you have placed your spirit inside of us to allow us to focus not on the things of the flesh, but on the things of the spirit. And thank you, Heavenly Father, in the midst of this new responsibility that we have, 
to destroy the sin in our lives, that you give us the power to do it. Totally, amazingly wonderful. Lord, may these incredible people, may they live under the constant reminder of the beauty of this gospel, the one that sets us free from sin and death. Forgive us, Heavenly Father, for the times where we hurt others, Lord, where our pride takes us to places we shouldn't go, where, uh, Lord, our, our lust and passions of the flesh cause us to hurt ourselves and others. Forgive us for those things. Forgive us for the things that enter our minds that we don't act upon, but reveal, Heavenly Father, the, the depth of the sin in our hearts and remind us that we have been bought with a price. You are good and holy, and we desperately need you. It's through your son's name we pray.